Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage or in these troubled times over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite Beyond the Page, Profile Theater's online magazine. In this episode, we'll be exploring themes and ideas presented in Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' Obie award-winning play, Appropriate. You'll be hearing from the director of Profile's production of Appropriate, Jerry Ruiz. Associate professor at Portland State University's School of Social Work, Roberta Hunt, will talk about how Oregonians can get better at talking about race and racism. And artist and community builder Michael Stevenson from the Van Port Mosaic will talk about memory, activism, and the necessity and difficulty in bringing forth the hidden histories of Portland, Oregon. Good afternoon, folks. I am here today talking to Jerry Ruiz, who is the director for Profile Theater's production of Appropriate. Good afternoon, Jerry. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Jerry, um, uh, we might as well get right into it. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins Appropriate. Uh, it's a wild play. Um an award-winning play. Tell me about uh, first, like um, how you came to be involved with this production. Sure. Well, Josh Hecht, the artistic director of Profile Theater, reached out to me around early December to gauge my interest and availability. He and I had been in touch over the years about me coming out here to direct. I think we talked about me directing a Kiara Hudes play back in 2017, and it didn't work out with my schedule. And so I was really excited uh, to hear from him. I was glad he reached out. Obviously, I've been eager to get back at it as the pandemic sort of winds down. It had been a couple of years since my last production. So I was familiar with the script. I'd, I'd read it before, and I know of Brandon's work. And I actually knew him a little bit when I was based in New York. Right? So I was uh, excited by the opportunity. Right on. Uh, and what attracted to you to this script? Well, I think it's a very clever script. It works on multiple levels. On one level, it's a very well-made American family drama. Uh, and on another deeper level, I think it's a critique of American society and our tendency to deny the history of, of violence and enslavement that our country is built upon. So... On one hand, it's a play where siblings kind of go at it and uh, really challenge each other emotionally in the wake of their father's death. And then on another level, they're dealing with that legacy. They're a Southern family, and this plantation house has been in their family for five generations. So as they clean out the house, they, they find certain things that are, are very disturbing and that force them to reckon with that legacy. Yeah, one of the things I thought that was really fascinating about this play is that it was both um, a classic uh, um, American family drama, um, like Death of a Salesman, All My Sons, Buried Child, uh, Long Day's Journey in the Night, and it kind of subverted that same that same genre at the same time, you know, um, which seems to be a uh, a bit of a hallmark of of uh, Jacob Jenkins' work. Right. It's definitely in that lineage, and I think he is both paying homage to those plays and also in a kind of playful, mischievous way, poking fun at some of the tropes of American family drama. There's a character who's kind of the black sheep of the family that, that has a, a sort of uh, troubled history, um, has 
struggled with alcohol and addiction. Um, of course, they're squabbling over the inheritance and what to do with the house and how much money will they get for it. So there are certain things that feel like very conventional uh, aspects of the plot. And I think in doing that, Brandon is very knowingly sort of playing with those tropes, subverting them, turning them upside down. And uh, I think that's one of the really fun things about it as a director or as an actor. You're kind of mining these tropes and playing with them in, in some way. And do you think that is because like, like as uh, like if, if, if it was like um, in the 21st century, we have started to move uh, away from a lot of the things that like that used that that, that used to um, be uh, staples of the American stage, we've kind of moved a, 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 um, a little bit away from those narratives and are stri- starting to try to tell other things, to tell other stories rather. Um, why do you think appropriate has because it's, it's a popular production? I mean, it's a popular script um, and has been done all over the country and um, and has received a ton of accolades. Why do you think it speaks to twenty twenty two America? Well, I think the form is very familiar. As an audience, we're, we're used to encountering these kinds of plays. And you mentioned Death of a Salesman, All My Sons, Long Day's Journey Into Night. So we've all kind of been brought up on those plays as an audience. So the form is recognizable and familiar, and yet the content is very surprising. So at the end of Act One, when there is a discovery made. I don't want to give too much away, but there is right. a discovery made. An object in the house uh, is found that is that is very surprising and disturbing to the family. When that happens, it kind of pulls the rug out from under you. You kind of think you're watching one kind of play. Oh, I know what this play is. It's a drama about a dysfunctional white upper middle class family. And then this object is found and you go, oh, this play is about something else entirely. And so I think it's uh, a very smart way for the playwright to kind of uh, layer in this this critique of our society, uh, this critique of our racist past uh, and present, really, uh, because a lot of the play is about how the characters who are still alive in this family, how they wrestle with or deny or try to hide that that history uh even from themselves right um uh so i so the great that, that you know that's, that's perfect so um being how it, it, like it's a subversion of a classic american trope how does that change your approach to the subject matter and to, and to the to the play well i think it's interesting. It's sort of all about the context. So when we're working through it in rehearsal, uh, we're doing all the things that directors and actors always do, trying to understand the character motivations, what they want from each other, what they're trying to achieve in the play. Uh, But at the same time, we're also aware of the playwright's intentions and, uh, and how those characters, even though they are fully human and fully recognizable uh, characters, they're they're quite flawed in how they're seeing things or in how they're responding to the information they've gotten about uh, their late father and about the family's history. So we kind of have to keep both of those things in mind, right? like the, the characters and making them authentic and believable and compelling. And yet we kind of have to also keep in mind this larger narrative um, that really it's a play about white guilt and white denial. And uh, the actors, I'm really lucky, the actors are very aware of this. They're they're very smart. Um, so they can make choices that support their character while also being aware, oh, my character is denying the family's racist past right now. So they're in no way trying to justify uh, what the character is saying, but at least they're kind of uh, understanding as they make this choice um, where it's coming from. And one of the main characters is Tony, the the eldest daughter uh, in the family. And really we've landed on for her that she's trying to preserve her father's legacy. She's trying to protect his good name. So those are things an actor can really play but of course, in doing that, she's kind of trying to erase a part of the family's history. Right, right. And Tony's being played by Linda Hayden. Linda Hayden, right, is is playing Tony, who, and a, a veteran of the profile stage, and who kicked ass and took names in uh, sweat as well. It's a great part for her, Tony. 
yeah, she's very she's very talented and uh, she's very smart in how she's approaching it and really making Tony very human and very compelling, even though she's well aware in the room as an actor, as we're working on the play and the, and the character that, oh, this this woman is really in denial. She can't accept this about her father. Mm. She can't accept that her father might own these objects or have them knowingly in his house. So it's a really, it's a really interesting play uh, because it kind of requires you as a director and as as an actor to both be inside of it and sort of outside of it because of the larger commentary. Yeah. Cause I, I, um, are you like is it, is it challenging for them? You think sometimes like sometimes um, I, you know I feel like it's interesting. Sometimes you're when you play uh, somebody who's a bad person, it's a lot of fun. You know, like like <laughs> if you're playing Hannibal Lecter right. or Darth Vader, it's just a blast. Yes, but if you're playing like somebody who's um, just kind of like weak or cowardly or uh, you know morally bankrupt or something like that, you know, or, or like just, you know, has these awful attitudes. Uh, sometimes that can be tougher to go into and go into find because, you know, you feel like you don't want to get too close to it because is this some judgment on me as a person, you know, like, you know, uh, is that sometimes tough for the actors to overcome? Like, uh, I'm just saying this, it's not really how I feel kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot of emotional violence in the play, uh, just the way the characters treat each other, uh, the way the three siblings speak to each other, or um, the way that they speak to their in-laws. Some very harsh things are said from character to character, and uh, there is some uh, racially charged language that's used towards some of the characters. And so that that can be very draining for, for all of the actors. And, and even, I think, for me and the other people in the rehearsal room, the stage management team. So in some ways, we have to kind of step outside of the world of the play at the end of the rehearsal. And uh, there, there are a lot of people uh, now in the, in the theater industry that have a practice of kind of de-rolling at the end of a rehearsal or a performance, they'll literally just take a moment and take a breath and kind of let the character and the play wash away. Um, so that's something I've encouraged the actors do, to do to take care of themselves. And uh, for me, I have to go home and, and listen to music and kind of unwind for a while after rehearsal sure. or or else I won't be able to go to sleep. The, right. the kind of emotional turbulence that the play evokes will will kind of keep eating at me. The playwright is definitely trying to provoke us as an audience mm-hmm. and to and to push buttons and to make us uncomfortable. He's a big provoker. He is. Yeah. He he really Yeah, he 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 loves to kind of uh provoke us, push our buttons, surprise us, uh toy with our expectations and that's what makes his play so exciting. Uh, like I know Profile just did Gloria and when I read that play for the first time, luckily I didn't know what happened. I had no idea. I thought, oh, I'm in an office comedy. It's, you know, kind of dark, but it's just these characters who kind of are sniping at each other and it's office politics. And then all of a sudden there's a huge plot twist. And uh, then you realize, oh, the play is kind of not doing what I thought it was doing. So my expectations have now been subverted. Uh, I, I love the way that he does that. And I think he's very skillful. So this play does take us to some uncomfortable and dangerous places. And I do think in the last five or six years, there's been more of an awareness in the theater industry about, uh, letting artists take care of themselves and there are practices some of them are through theatrical intimacy training um, like the de-rolling is, is something that i've learned uh, in workshops as a director for theatrical intimacy uh, there isn't necessarily romantic intimacy in this play but there is emotional intimacy sure. in the sense that people's boundaries are getting very messy in, in terms of the character relationships on stage and as i said some very hurtful and violent things are said. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it's important um, for, for all of us who are working on the play to take care of them, to take care of, our, of ourselves. Uh, and then another thing that's come up that I think is really interesting that, that theaters are doing, I know of some theaters that have had an EDI advocate, equity, diversity, and inclusion advocate in the rehearsal process for certain shows that deal with this kind of charged material, uh, especially when it's um, about racial dynamics or race relationships. Um, That's not quite what this play requires, um, but uh, I, I do think it's a really good practice. And in some ways, 
you can still be safe while doing work that is risky and provocative and and dangerous in a sense. Um, But I do think it's really important for us to have good, healthy boundaries in how we do that work. Um, Otherwise, abusive situations can arise. And I think you and I are both well aware of that. You know, there's the old stereotype of the director just being a tyrant and yelling at his actors or commenting on their appearance. Like those are the kinds of practices that I think in the last 10 to 20 years, we've become more aware of really how harmful they are. Right. And I, and I love the way you just said that because I feel like you just crystallized a conundrum of, uh, you know, and it seems to be especially American theater more so than film, more, more so than uh, music um, or like, you know, visual arts, like painting or anything like that is, um, I hear it discussed and, you know, I'm not as much in those other industries. So I, don't, I guess I don't know as much, but um, uh, how do we do both? Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- this conundrum between doing risky, you know, even quote unquote dangerous work, um, uh, um, you know, you know, art that reveals an ugly reveals or explores or something about an ugly truth that, that, that human beings live in. I mean, like right now, there's like wars going on and, and people are dying and everything. At the end, at the same time, what is what is our responsibility as human beings simply to take care of other human beings, be they the artist or be they the audience member? You know, uh, it's it's a it's, you know, it's it's something that we're, we're we're grappling with right now. Absolutely, I think we're living through a very challenging time. Uh, the last two years or so of the pandemic have been incredibly challenging, isolating, uh, difficult for us as artists who who rely on community, on doing work together right. in a room. Uh, we couldn't really do what we do. We have to f- find other ways to try to do it um, during the last two years. So that was really tough. And then I think our, our world is just incredibly uncertain right now. Um, there, there's a lot happening. And um, so we don't kind of have that that comfort of, of security in, in knowing that uh, that we will, we will be able to be safe or, or uh, live our lives the way that we'd hope to. So I do think that um, because of that, we're all pretty sensitive and, and pretty fragile right now. And, and I definitely feel that. Um, I also teach. I teach directing uh, at Texas State University, and I, I see it in my students. Uh, I see how hard the last couple of years have been on them. Uh, they don't hmm. have the same kind of emotional access or stamina um, in, in their scene work. Uh, I definitely see it in the in the student actors um, that, that we work with in class and in our productions. So I do think that it's that much more important to create a safe rehearsal environment. And I think there's been kind of this idea traditionally of the theater director as kind of this very king-like figure this this very hierarchical way of doing theater that the director and the playwright kind of say how things are going to be and then everyone else has to carry out that vision. I do think we've we've slowly evolved from that and now I what I really teach my directing students is how to create a space that uh people feel empowered to take risks within. Right. Easier said than done. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh last question um the title appropriate. Uh it means a lot of different things in this play. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, I almost mentioned Without the, revealing too much. <laughs> I almost mentioned the title a little bit earlier. Uh, it's funny. Uh, Brandon has never really said whether the title is appropriate or appropriate. <laughs> and hmm. I do think he is appropriating, uh, as we talked about, he's, he's taking the, these uh, very well-known kind of formulas of the American theater and making them his own and using it as a vehicle to convey a story about uh, racism and kind of our history of denial in America of, of our racist past. Um, so he is appropriating that and using it um, to convey a message. And then... Uh, there are also subtle touches in the play where uh, a character um, who is white may be wearing something that is from another culture, like maybe it's Native American, maybe it's Mexican, or uh, anyway, we see this character appropriating uh, something from another culture. And that's in the stage directions. It's it's not even 
a choice that we've made as a creative team. It's it's mm-hmm. in there uh, in how he's described the characters. So you kind of see these subtle and not so subtle signs that um, these characters are in the habit of appropriating uh, elements of other cultures and and other people. So that's one level. And then there's a a very uh, robust conversation in the play about what is appropriate for the adults to be telling their children, because there are children in the play. Um, One character is 17, another is 13, and one is 8. So how do the grown-ups talk to the children about this racist past of their family, the fact that the family were slaveholders several generations back. Um, The fact that there are certain things in the house that can't be explained away. Uh, And so I think that's a big part of the conflict in the play is how do we tell the younger generation about this past? (laughs) What is appropriate for them to see or to know? And how can we, how can we guide them in understanding? Um, And then he puts actual children in the play. Right, right. (laughs) There is there, we have an 11 year old actor playing the character who's an eight year old and we have to take him out of the room at certain times. (laughs) And (laughs) who's that? uh, His name is Nico Spaulding. He is uh, 11. He's a Portland resident and he's playing the character of Ainsley and so at certain times I kind of just give the stage manager a look and she'll give the PA the production assistant a look and they'll take him out into the the green room or the waiting area because there are things in the play we don't really want him to see or hear uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and and so yeah I think that does add an element of danger to the play uh, which is which is very smart um, on Brandon's part there's um, the danger that he'll see something that he probably shouldn't see as an eight-year-old. Right, right. Well, Jerry Ruiz, uh, it's been terrific having you. Um, thank you so much for coming on to Satellite. And uh, the production sounds super exciting and super interesting, of course. You know, um, and, you know, welcome to Portland. Thank you. Thanks, Bobby. I uh, enjoyed talking about the play with you. And we'll be right back with Roberta Hunt. I'm feeling jolly, I'm feeling jolly, jolly, jolly. Let's let the creativity and self-expression commence. Profile theater, yeah, they're here to present to you a free writing workshop for any LGBTQ plus and BIPOC individual. You could choose to sit with us in a room in the physical, or you could join through Zoom and do it virtual. Long as you're 18 through 30 years old, you'll have the opportunity to write, learn, and grow from some of the most prominent writers this world has known. Learn to get in your zone. And they'll teach you how to hone all your skills, all your talents, all your writing powers. An affinity space full of artists once a month for three hours. Making major changes across the nation. Just by using your imagination and you might be thinking, where is the location? Well, it's where outside the frame is. In downtown Portland, up the stairs in the Union Station. You know the train station building with the big sign that says, Go by train. Here's your chance to pull and express yourself in a major way. We're here to listen to anything that you gotta say. We wanna hear your voice, use your words, and take them straight off the page. Even if you're thinking that you got no style. Even if you haven't wrote for a while. Come on down to Community Profile. And let your creativity flow and go wild. And we are back with Roberta Hunt. And so, folks, uh, here I am with the amazing Roberta Hunt. Um, And I say amazing in all kinds of ways. uh, As you're about to find out, um, Roberta is super smart. um, and She's uh, super caring and a very generous spirit. And um, she is one of my friends who seems like every time I ask her, she says yes, um, which I uh, really appreciate it. Which, which, which I really appreciate. Um, not the least of which. Uh, well, before I go that, before any further that. Hi, Roberta. How are you? Hi, Bobby. You know, it's good to see you. It's great to see you. Um, and what I was going to say is. Uh, Part of the reason why it's always great that you always say yes is because you are so smart and so capable and you think about the world in 360 degrees, um, uh, which is one of those things that I feel like is um, actually harder to come by than you would think. So uh, Profile Theater is currently doing this play appropriate, which deals 
with uh, a family um, coming into contact with their own uh, legacy of racism, uh, their family's legacy of racism. And uh, when we read the play, and I, th- I think even when Profile was picking it, part of the thing, well, you know, one of the things that was interesting about it was that we live in a state that is kind of um, reaching a similar reckoning. Um, like uh, there are a lot of Oregonians and especially I think a lot of new Oregonians like me, like I wasn't born and raised here, you know, and I, I came here from someplace else who are just finding out or just learning or is becoming uh, apparent in a different way about Oregon's uh, history of racism. Um, and I'm just curious, it's like, uh, if because if, uh, you work at PSU, of course, and if this has come up for you, um, what, do do people like bring it up to you? Um, and if so, how do you talk to them about it? Well, I teach a race and social justice class, um, so really? that's all we talk Who about. Let us. <laughs> <laughs> that's like what we do. Um, and so I have a, a group of gorgeous freshmen who hang out with me, and we. Um, talk about uh, race and racism. And, you know, a part of it, we're thinking about, you know, we read um, uh, Imran um, Kendi's book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which gives us a common language to think about racism and to think about it in a structural way, as well as uh, a... um, uh, a system of laws and policies and cultural beliefs that impact us, um, that we perpetuate, um, that we're responding to, um, regardless of our uh, racial identities in this country. And um, and so we learn about our own personal experiences and bring them up and kind of think about them next to a theoretical frame. Um, but we also have been reading um, Menachem's book, um, My Grandmother's Hands, that's talking about racialized trauma and the ways that we embody that racialized trauma and that we transfer it generation to generation. So some of our uh, racial fears um, and some of the ways that our, our kind of body responds uh, the anxiety that our body feels, regardless of uh, what skin we are in, uh, is not just coming from this moment. It's coming from uh, our past generations and um, is also being informed by what's happening around us and has happened to us. And we also read the book uh, White Rage, which is a really important book. Um because, you know, I think that uh, someone told me that they said the U.S. was an ahistorical nation, um, that we we act like today is the first day and um, that we miss the ways that um, we are. What we do today is based on our history um, and that uh, we need to understand that so that we don't keep repeating it. Um and doesn't it feel like like right now it's it's really like it's crazy that you say that right now it feels like uh right in this moment nationwide there are portions of white america that are trying to do that deliberately yes you know yes they're um being gangster really mm-hmm. and uh they're like let's let's pack the courts let's uh if we don't like the way the law is being used let's change the law which uh when we look at um our history and if you read white rage uh, which is looking at um, uh, it looks at the slave codes. It looks at the black codes, which came out after slavery, uh, which were um, a way of uh, essentially re-enslaving uh, black people. Um, and and then you look at the Jim Crow laws, uh, which were further laws uh, post reconstruction that were about um restricting uh, black life, black communities and whatnot, and restricting other um, communities of colors, right? Depending on which uh, country, uh, not which country, which part of the country you were in, restricting what people could do, uh, what they could learn, where they could walk, where they could buy property. Um, 
uh, and so forth and so on. And what you see is that these maneuvers have been done before. They were done um, after Reconstruction. They were done really to end Reconstruction um, and to solidify um, white economic and political social power. Um, and we lived the uh, ramifications of those laws. I mean, we're still um, in many ways working to dismantle the ramification of those laws. Um, so, you know, one of the things that um, I work with people on is is twofold. It's um, giving a broader framework for thinking about issues of race, racism, and social justice within the U.S., um, and understanding that it's not about the individual. It is so much bigger hmm. than the individual. Um, so that's one part. And we are humans having a human experience and emotions and um, misperceptions and all of that are part of our lived reality. And so it's also um, about understanding what's happening in the body and in my mind when I'm invited into a conversation about race and racism or when I'm confronted by such a situation. And so... One of the uh, things that I uh, and that that's one of the reasons that I like Menachem's book um, is that it uh, uh, helps people. Um, I think he calls it metabolize trauma <laughs> and metabolize race, racism related trauma um, so that we can bring it out. We can heal it. Um, we can expose it um, and we can do something different. One of the things that, that I think about with my young students uh, is that they want something different. Like they do not, uh, they didn't come here to hate people. Um, and um, that is the the dirty pain that we have um, given them. And um, I think about with the film appropriate, I mean, the play appropriate, um, that play uh, is really looking at Dirty pain, right? Mm -hmm. um, lynchings and the, hist the the buried history of lynchings in our country um, is uh, a, a dirty pain. Uh, white riots in our country have dirty pain, um, and uh, the the efforts to um, uh, stamp out critical race theory, which is really just talking about racism within our policies, practices, and procedures within our structures is about dirty pain. What we want to silence is about our pain. Um, so uh, our healing requires um, our willingness to address. And, um, you know, Angela Davis talks about, she says that radical, that a radical solution is one that goes to the root and we can't go to the root if we're not willing to look at what's there. Mm -hmm. um, it's so funny, like the, 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 the critical race theory thing, you know, even before, like, I feel like the, the, because I see many people were like, you know, they, they don't they actually don't teach that in uh, elementary school. They don't teach that in kindergarten where all these parents are going to town hall and complaining about it. And I'm like, um, and why does it matter if they did? I mean, it's not, uh, down with white people theory, you know, it's critical race theories, but thinking about this thing critically, uh, what is it just about that concept, about that idea that scares you so much? And I think that phrase, which I have not heard before, the phrase dirty pain is uh, is such a fascinating and like astute and it feels like accurate way to uh, to characterize this thing. Yeah. And, you know, our our. This is Menachem again. He talks about clean pain and our clean pain is um, we, we have to build up for that. And it's about being open to talking about the things that um, that we're ashamed of, that hurt us, that have hurt other people. Um, and it's about seeking to understand how that could happen. And it's not about saying right. that, oh, those people were just bad. It's 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 saying more this is where we live. This is the ground we're walking on and the system in which we're in. 
And what are we going to do about that? Because if we, you know, when you think about, um, I think a lot about lynching and um, uh, I was listening to um, Dr. Kenjus Watson and, and, and Menachem also talks about this. And he was saying that you should look at the children in lynch and in, um, in lynching photos, look at the white children, right? Because these are babies who are being taught to hate, who are being taught to dehumanize, to be desensitized to a loss of black life. Um, and, you know, it's not, uh, I, part of my work is I work on, um, maternal health and with a focus on, um, black, uh, reproductive health. And, uh, one of the things that we, um, look at are the ways that, um, black people are consistently, uh, missed in the medical system. And one of the reasons is, um, through, um, uh, um, racial, uh, stereotypes, uh, where, um, a black parent will be considered a menace to their child and not because they are, but because of the ways that they are perceived um, and diagnostic lapses where um, uh, medical professionals will see um, a need in a um, uh, non-black person and not see the same need in um, in a black person. And um, these diagnostic lapses and ideas about uh, the black body as being strong and um, hardy and ready for birthing um, come from slavery, right? It comes from the period of enslavement that was about uh, black labor and black bodies and black reproductive labor as um, commodities, um, not as human beings deserving of care and and whatnot. Um, and so one of the things that we think about is, is this the world we want to live in? Right. Right. Um, and is this uh, um, like how what is the what are the many ways that we can unlearn um, the uh, false truths that we have held on to so dearly? as as a nation i i think of it as in many ways a rehumanization and not a rehumanization of black folks um mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. a rehumanization of white folks mm -hmm. um because if you're holding on to ideas about other people as less human than you are which was a key feature of racialized education like Whoa, that is some messed up foolish. It has to have a cost. A huge cost. Uh, it has to have a cost. A huge cost. And, you know, we think about if if one group of people can wage such violence on another, that violence does not um stay outside. Right. That nonsense comes inside, right? It comes into the body, it comes into how we relate to each other. And so, you know, I think um, the healing is so um, uh, fundamentally important for all of us um, and for our future generations. You know, one thing as well, I'm, I'm talking about white folks, people of color, we have so much healing that we need to do and are doing um, to um, uh, recover ourselves uh, because all of this these this racialized caste system in which we live uh, is is a type of soul wounding and for many of us a type of soul murder right um yeah and I love the 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 wounding metaphor because I've also I've often thought that like um, slavery and that kind of um, like giant event um, leaves a scar in the human condition. You know, um, and, you know, of course, you know, we feel it most readily, but we obviously don't feel it only, you know, um, and and you still see the ramifications, I feel like, of it even going all the way to like January 6th, you know, um, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and I know, like, uh, what is this class called again? Uh, race and Social Justice. Ra race and Social Justice. Do, do you ever meet resistance to some of these ideas or some of these things you're 
you're talking about? Um, yeah, I do. Um, I, I reach, I, not so much from the students I'm working with, uh, right now. Um, uh, they're, uh, curious <laughs> and what teacher does not love a curious student? Yeah. Um, uh, and they they talk a lot about how they didn't know a lot of this history and different histories, and they want to know. Um, and they they feel frustrated with their education that um, didn't support that. And you know, in um, Oregon, students lobbied for an ethnic studies component uh, to be included to um, uh, K through twelve education. Uh, they also and 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 students like are excited about that. Um, they feel like it makes them better stewards and participants um, of of the of our land of with other people. Um, but you know, I think I I do a lot of consulting work and um, and I uh, I find some people I reach resistance from. Um, and in my work, I think about I'm not interested in moving the person who is so entrenched in their fear and um, their conception of the world that uh, where they can't engage um, or even have a measure of curious curiosity about um, the system of uh, our racialized caste system and how to change it. Uh, I'm. Someone else can do that work. I am interested in uh, people who uh, want a better future that is um, sustainable, that is loving, where they get to be their full selves, where other people are their full selves. Um, Even if they don't know how to reach it. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I I think uh, we make the road by walking and um, and we build it in community. It's not built in isolation. You're right. Right. Um, uh, Roberta Hunt, you have been dazzling, um, as always. uh, And I appreciate you stopping by and talk to me about this really heavy stuff. Um, Yeah. Y'all should know that Roberta is also a really light and funny person um, <laughs> <laughs> who laughs a lot and easily, you know. Um, so I appreciate you so much, friend, for coming on and talking to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you asked me. That's right. <laughs> we'll be right back with Michael Stevenson. Compassion. The desire to help. It's part of Portland's DNA. It's also at the heart of what Central City Concern does every day. Last year, they helped over 13,000 people experiencing or at risk for homelessness get back on track, providing health care, housing, and employment opportunities. But they can't do it alone. Go to their website at centralcityconcern.org to learn how you can be part of the solution. And we're back with Michael Stevenson. So I'm here this afternoon with uh, Michael Stevenson. That's me. So you just told me that you have a background in sculpture, and what else are you doing? Yeah, background in sculpture, and uh, was just talking about how I'm an artist, but a lot of that manifests now as community social projects, and <clears throat> Vanport Mosaic uh, supported over this past summer, and we're getting ready to do it again, a project called Fred Hampton Summer Camp, and we, you know, I know Kent Ford through Vanport Mosaic and, you know, right now uh, Damaris is working on a Panther play and, you know, I'm really interested in education and curriculum and dispensing knowledge and wisdom in those spaces. And so in the camp, we met with Fred or with Kent. Uh, We talked about Fred Hampton and then, you know, part of it for me was just getting them acquainted with their own neighborhood. Kent is the founder of the Black Panther Party of Portland. Oh, wow. And so he had his story, you know, it's in Damaris's play. He drove down to California and was lifting weights with UP Newton. And, you know, he said, you know, I, I think I might want to do a chapter up in Portland. And Huey kind of pensively looked and then said, 
all right, okay. And, um, you know, so they were doing the whole thing. Uh, the Portland Black Panthers was the only Black Panther clin- uh, to have a free dental clinic in the history of the Black Panthers. So it was unique out here and unique to the context and unique to his work that he was doing with other folks. And, uh, yeah, he's just... You know, it's funny when people hear about the Black Panthers, they conjure a certain image in their head. Uh, Kent is the sweetest guy, and he goes swimming every day, and um, he just really loves... In fact, I I told him I was doing a presentation about Fred Hampton this Friday during school time, and he said, can I come, Michael? He's just excited. You know, he just wants to be there. You try to pay him. He's like, ah, you know, whatever. I'm just doing it for the kids. How did you get in touch with Vanport Mosaic? And why did you Because they do specifically memory activism. Sure. You know, um, how did you start working with them? And and, and why did that speak to you? Uh, I think so. Part of it was probably through Kent was was maybe the avenue. I met Kent and was working with Kent on the Black Panther breakfast stuff. And. Kent does walking tours that are facilitated by the uh, Vanport Mosaic. And I was on a walking tour and I can't remember. I want to say that was the first time I met Damaris. And I guess during the pandemic, Damaris kind of called me out of the blue, knowing that I, you know, not necessarily out of the blue, but Damaris had a particular thing that she was interested in. She was interested in creating curriculum to go along with the walking in the streets like a Panther play. And I also was interested in that um, because I was just to my understanding of what we're exploring here, I think is really important. Not only so Damaris being a black creative is creating a play about a black historical figure who's still alive and is able to cast a black actor and I'm like all this really great stuff's going on and my hands are on and near it I want to be able to apply for funding so we can just siphon this stuff right into the schools I don't want anyone to need to pay for it I want the kids to be able to have access to this and so um you know we started talking about how to make this curricular and this was when and we were hanging out, you know, we're, we're personal friends as well. Um, and our interests are aligned, the various work that I was doing, the various work that Vanport's doing. And that is when PPS just put out the call. And so again, Damaris reached out to me and was like, how can we get this to get together? And I just pitched Fred Hampton summer camp. It was just what was on the top of my mind. You know, I had just done the Afro contemporary art class at King school And I was, you know, thinking about how can I make it more historical, more direct and engaged. And so when when the call came out, we pitched Fred Hampton summer camp. All the thoughts were in the right place. I put it on the paper. PPS said yes. And and we've continued to work together on not only Fred Hampton summer camp, but also curriculum around the Panther play and thinking, I guess I was also talking to Damaris about Martha Bakes. So that was a play about right. Martha Washington yeah. and creating curriculum around that. It's and, a crazy play. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I know the theater teacher at Jefferson, um, Ellery McIver Baker, and was talking about how to, get the play and the students in the play and to see it and to do the curriculum. So all of those things were kind of how our relationship kind of grew and deepened. And, you know, now I'm kind of doing some programming this upcoming year for the Vanport Mosaic Festival, uh, specifically on the theme of housing. Um, It is the 80th anniversary of the building of Vanport is the theme for the Vanport Mosaic Festival this year. Uh, we'll be showing the documentation because I take a picture every day, right? So at this point, I have a movie of the thing getting built. And that, for me, it's like, and just this thing we were talking about before, everyone's like, oh, it's a shame. Everything is no good. And it's like, and they're like, why? I just don't get it. And I'm like, well, let me show you a movie because who do we displace to make this thing? And who's going to move in? And and then what? And what are we going to say now? Like, I'm tired of people saying they don't know what's going on. I feel like, and that's why bringing these hidden histories is important. Sure. These hidden histories forward sure. is important. Well, for me, so that's the fast thing. I did the Afro-Contemporary Art class, and I was having to educate myself. I almost, I kind of oh. like, I was like, yeah. okay, 
uh, let's teach them about. I was I was gonna like teach Black history, you know, from Egypt to present, and I was like, I don't know anything about that. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I know moments, but I didn't know how to like do it justice in sure. an educational setting, and. So I pivoted and um, was teaching about Afro-contemporary art and were drawing from the era in which the art was created. And so really kind of hit it off specifically with Emery Douglas and the Black Panthers. And I was already interested. A lot of my work also has to do with food. And so I was already interested in the Black Panther breakfast program as like community gathering, gathering around food food itself as activism nourishing in order to all these things and so i met ken ford who was part of the breakfast plan program here and it was hanging out with ken ford who he was also like um he's like oh check out this fred hampton documentary i didn't know anything about fred hampton and you know became specifically interested in the rainbow coalition and getting all the people of different cultures together to essentially fight back against the government and that's when I was like, oh, man. And I think as a kid, history didn't have that much meaning to me. And now that my work is rooted in these very specific human experiences that have meaning and have had influence. And so, yes. And it's funny because like, so, and history is not this, like the abstract thing that we kind of like read about. And, right. you know, it's a, it's a living, active thing that we are creating moments yes. that, that we are, that we are also like working on and putting in our own, uh, like pave stones and whatnot. Totally. You know, every, you know, every day ourselves. Right. I mean, that's what essentially the conversation with the young mm. people is. It's like, okay, with history, they're kind of like drowsy eyed. And then I'm like, all right, now we're outside. Like is they're related. We're here. Um, and you know, just like you're saying, and it's interesting coming to Portland because I had to relearn. I know more about Portland history than I do any particular narrative in the East Coast. And I think part of it is because I like came out here as an adult and I was like, what's going on? And I think the other part of it is is the scale of Portland is intimate. And so – and there's like archives of everything. And so the stories are right there. And it's crazy. You know, like I just met Bobby Folder not long ago. Uh, like. Not super long ago, but not recently. Um, and That's a learned, lot of knowledge right there. Yeah, and I learned that he's uh, an Emmanuel displaced person, him and his sister Liz. And so, and he's like, oh, yeah, we have photos of us sitting on the same porch for however many years. And so, hundred, like literally 100 years. Um, and, um, you know, 100 years of family legacy, you know, whatever, you know, 40, 50 years of, of this particular porch. Um, but you know, and, and like, and so many people come to Portland nowadays and they go, Emmanuel, oh, it's always been there. Yes. And so that's right. And so, you know, and to meet him. And so he's still trying to get recompense. Right. And so it's not, it happened in an era in which the photos of it are black and white. Right. But it is not over as a story. Right. And so even, Holmes uh, is still alive. Like, he's he alive right now. Yeah. You know, and he's one of the few folks, I mean, that I know. I mean, Kent is another one who grew up and in, lived in the community, is still walking around the same community. But also a lot of their stories are like people left. They went out to Gresham. Um, and, you know, so a recent to-do, which is, uh, so there was the Emmanuel and then there was I-5, Right. And so, and again, I've talked to the kids. <laughs> nope, I didn't know. I hadn't thought about it. Like for me, like I-5, you know, it's always been there. Sure. Uh, 84 has always been there. So, yeah, I-5 is a part of this same systematic attack to the Albina neighborhood. Gotcha. Right? And so, again, we're like, oh, why, why did all the black people go in Albina? And, like, why is there violence? It's like, and you're like, but I-5. You're like, well, what about I-5? It's like, well, they split the whole community and devastated it. By putting it in there. And they took over all the houses to eminent domain to move them out of the way. And so now also Black United Front, and there's pictures in on you Google Black United Front, Harriet Tubman, and essentially the where Harriet Tubman is now, um, they were they're still it's still whoever listening to us, whenever it is, it's probably still happening. Um but <laughs> you know, very recently, this academic year, um, they right right around uh, Christmas break, 
right before it, they were like, oh, yeah, we got to have a meeting over at King. Uh, come and see what's going on. And the meeting was like, Harriet Tubman is um, next to I-5. I-5 is putting off, like, lethal levels of um, pollution. And so, you know, PSU did a study and the report, the line that's in the newspaper that the report said is don't let the kids play outside because it's hazardous. And um, so they're like, oh, we got to move the school and PPS owns all the buildings. And so what we're going to do is move the school to another building that we own. And so they have like seven feeder elementary schools and lo and behold, you know, ask anyone who works at MLK Junior School. They were ready to move it to MLK Junior School, even though they were like, oh, we're we're meeting with the schools. We had a meeting at King School. We didn't have a meeting at the other schools yet, but we really thought we should talk to King School first. And they were like, well, what happens to us? And they're like, well, you dissipate. There was no answer. We don't know the answer is what they would say as the official answer. And... um. So, I mean, the story is longer, but essentially the school literally, you know, I helped them make signs and put it on the, you know, the handles and all the kids after school on some Friday poured out of the school and marched and made on the newspaper. And they were like, oh, uh, we're not going to do it. So meanwhile, the the money, because they're trying to expand I-5, this is part of what all of this, and they're like, oh, it's going to be too close to the highway. But if you look at it, they actually have to knock the school down to expand it. Right. And so it's all the same. So, But then if you go back in history, Black United Front, they protested moving Harriet Tubman there in the first place. And they went to the school board meeting and they said, hey, don't do this very loudly. And they're like, oh, we can't concentrate. So they canceled the meeting. They held the meeting in private where they voted unanimously to do it anyway. And now it's in a hazardous location. What year was that? Um, Maybe the 80s. Right. Or a little bit before. But but like kind of, kind of like the overarching point is that all the, like like and like what you're talking about now like that's not ancient history no that's going on right now it's still going and on. that's and that's being informed by everything that happened before yes and and so they've spent a million dollars putting air filtration on the school they closed it they put the filtration on they opened it again and now they're like we got to move it and 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 also they're using they're like oh Albina Trust said we can't move Harriet Tubman outside of Albina well we're and and so we need. 700 acres to make a new school. But there's no evergreen plot like that. And so it's just the <laughs> same kind of madness right. is happening still. There's not some giant park out there just waiting for you to put a new uh, right. school there. right? And so that's what, you know, I think the history, it allows me and like, right, I'm a foreigner. But if any city official tried to talk to me about this, I'd be like, man, this is stinky. Right. Uh and I, I know it is and is even wild because, you know, the Black United Front did the work. The, it's just you just read one thing and all the history is right there. And there are people like Cleo Davis and Kettyane Davis who and Damaris and Kent and Bobby. I know them. They are telling me. Right. And so I'm working with kids and they're kind of like just looking at their phone or whatever kind of stuff and. It's actually kind of a beautiful thing. We don't need to go to some museum or whatever. We are just walking around in their own neighborhood and able to pull these stories forward. And I, I honestly, I do it. I think it's very real. It's very appealing to adults. I think it is in some ways lost on the kids in some immediate ability to make sense of it. But later, 10, 15 years, they will remember that they went to Fred Hinton summer camp when they're watching Judith and the Black Messiah. And they're like, oh, man, I learned about this as a kid. And it's wild because I'm telling them even who the Black Panthers are. They think it's a superhero. I'm like, well, actually, this is the reason that superheroes called this. Um, so it's really quite amazing. It's actually really fulfilling to to be dispensing these um, these stories and linking them into history so they can navigate the future of their life. And that is it for this edition of Satellite Beyond the Page. Thank you 
to our production crew, Jamie M. Ray, line producer, Robert A.K. Gagno, sound engineer, Matt Weens, composer, and Sam Mowry, recording engineer. And this was, of course, recorded at the Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon, which exists on the traditional lands of the Multnomah, Kaflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on. I am Bobby Bermea. Thank you for joining us for Satellite Beyond the Page. To hear more podcasts, go to Profile Theater slash On Air, where you'll find other episodes of Satellite Beyond the Page, as well as our community podcast, Voices from the Real World. If you have any feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out. Peace out.